Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast, you're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Wednesday, the 15th of November, and coming up on the program, the impact of port delays in Cape Town and the impact on the 63 billion rand fruit industry. A new food labelling regime, but who actually reads labels? The new Democratic Alliance leader in the Western Cape and his thoughts on economic disparity in the province and why corporate South Africa is hiring the wrong people in the wrong manner. A very warm welcome. Let's start with party politics. And Tersha Simmers is the Democratic Alliance's Western Cape leader after his election at the weekend. He has, as you might know, been the party's interim leader for the past 22 months or so, following the resignation of two previous leaders, Bongin Korsi Madikazela, who stood against him on Saturday, and then Albert Fritz, who faced sexual misconduct allegations. Simmers joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Mr. Simmers, at the very end, how big was your victory compared to your opponents and do you have a working mandate hi good afternoon jeremy good afternoon to all those who's following your podcast now indeed the the voter difference in terms of support i nearly got two-thirds of the mandate from the close to 1,000 delegates on saturday uh morning at the congress do you have good relations with your two challengers yes no indeed uh you know uh the 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 beautiful thing about the DA Western Cape, like any other the DA province, uh, provincial structure, is after Congress, we all move towards uh, working together and ensure that the, in the best interest of the Democratic Alliance, Western Cape, fully understanding, you know, that the clear mandate has been given to the leader and his supporting mem- members of the Provincial Executive Council. And as such, you know, we, we all toe the line and we march forward towards 2024, which is uh, a crucial election, not only for the Western Cape, but we, we believe for the rest of South Africa as well. But you issued this extraordinary statement, or you said there's discipline and discipline is to follow your leader. I'm interested to know what you meant by that and whether that is an indication of uh, not all being well. Well, no, indeed. Uh, I'm, after 23 years in the Democratic Alliance, I do believe in values and principles, which are the key drivers of discipline. That's uh, discipline amongst all rank and file, because irrespective of which titles we bear on behalf of the Democratic Alliance in government, or at party structure level, you know, we all are bound by the same discipline. We have a values and principles set. It's within our federal constitution. And, you know, we have seen since 2014, uh, the bigger the party has, has, has gotten in the Western Cape to a certain extent, you know, uh, various aspects of ill discipline has been noted. And which is why in the April Congress, the Federal Congress, you know, certain processes of our disciplinary process internally was actually uh, streamlined to accelerate to ensure that cases don't linger on and further damage our party, our party brand. 
but also to ensure that all members of our party fully understand that we we are a party of discipline, a party of fair process, also believing in the right of the individual member that goes through that Mm. disciplinary process. I'm interested to know, just looking through your list of office bearers, uh, as far as the province is concerned, as a percentage, uh, how many women are represented? Well, in terms of women, uh, remember we are uh, in the PEC, we have uh, one, we have two deputy chairs, we have one additional member. If you look at the expanded version of our PEC, we also have one regional uh, lead in terms of the East region, which is uh, Alderman Vanolia for Tain. So we are fairly representative in terms of uh, women on our PEC structure as well. It's not really enough, though. It sounds as if it is male-dominated. Well, look, at the end of the day, you know, we, we, you need to look at the number of uh, uh, members who put their hand up to be candidates for specific positions, but also it shows a clear indication of the support within our own structure, uh, given the three regions. And if, if you zoom at a regional level, you know, the representation of women is even is, is even more representative in our three regions of the Western Cape. Mm, but I'm talking about provincial uh, in this particular instance. Uh, it's interesting that more women don't put up their hands. We are, like I said, you know, we are a party that opens up its processes and individuals who feel they want to be part of that the uh, Congress process, you know, they put their hands up. We do encourage that also at a provincial level. Hence, you have a number one deputy chair and a number two deputy chair as well as an additional member, all seasoned politicians uh, and empowered as well in that regard. You said after your election that uh, you will return a stronger DA to power in the Western Cape. Uh, what are the numbers? How much stronger do you think? Well, obviously, you know, the, the, the clear benchmark that we have been focusing on uh, prior to the 11th of November when I was the interim leader was setting, uh, you know, mechanisms in motion to ensure that we come as close as possible, if not surpassing the elusive 60% mark for the DA Western Cape. The closest we have ever managed to to get to that elusive 60% benchmark was in 2014. And given what we have noted in the various by-elections across the Western Cape over the last 22 months prior to the 11th of November, we have seen phenomenal growth. Uh, we've seen, you know, where we retained wards, where we won wards, but in all those aspects, we managed to ensure effective growth. And that trajectory is, has been a consistent over the last uh, 22 months. And and we know it's going to be a lot of hard work, I must say, but, you know, um, we are not afraid to work hard in the Western Cape. But you're, con- we, you're confident You're confident of that 60%, are you? Well, if we do what we are doing, doing the basic which we have been doing for the last 22 months, I do believe that we, we will be able to attain the 60%. Yes. Let's look at some of the provincial priorities, if we can. In light of the DA's previous shortcomings in the Western Cape, when you look at areas like housing and service delivery, what new thinking as the leader are you going to bring to that process? Well, in terms of on the governance component, remember, I'm also a member of the Executive Council, which is the government of the Western Cape. It is focusing on innovation, introducing you know, uh, partnerships with the private sector, which we have been embarking on as a government. It's also embedded within our 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 DA policies. And as the custodian, I was the leader in the province to ensure that we embed the, those policy principles and approaches. You know, that will happen at an accelerated pace, given our premier candidate himself believes in innovation. We have introduced various forms of innovation. So, Mr. Simmons, I'm going to interrupt you there. You, you're starting to sound like a political dictionary. When you talk about embedding policy principles, what does that actually mean? Embedding uh, policies to ensure that uh, the DA difference, the DA's policy approach is galvanized in the administrative processes 
of the various departments in and the how, how is that going to how is that level. going to help uh, in issues like housing and service delivery well if you look and you to use your example of housing and service delivery every national benchmark in terms of service delivery uh, uh the basic service delivery we have been exceeding every benchmark at, at, against any other province in terms of human settlements we have also seen the improvement in terms of our own provincial data focusing on affordable housing where if you look at just in the affordable housing component which excludes your lower low cost housing market we are four times the bigger in terms of delivery over the last four and a half years so you know that the impediment of that approach has been seen in terms of data at our disposal the party's biggest problem i would suggest to you in the western cape is your is the economic disparity that exists are you able to share new and measurable policies with me in how to reduce this gap which is glaringly obvious to all south africans well, earlier this year, uh, you know, we did introduce the growth for job strategy of the Western Cape, which focuses on a 12-year horizon span. And it focuses on empowerment. It focuses on creating an economic opportunity, acknowledging the role of the private sector as a key partner in that, but also the role of as a provincial government. And what what, what immediate what immediate what immediate benefits have you seen from that plan? Well, if you look at the 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 most recent uh, court, quarterly results, I mean, we again have the lowest unemployment rate in the country as a province. If you zoom into the figures per district across our province, we've also seen an increase in the number of job opportunities created across all five districts. And if I include the city of Cape Town, once again, it, that, that is a key proof of the success of our policy interventions over the last quarter as well within our province. All right, Mr. Simmers, I'm sure we'll talk again in the run-up to next year's election. Thank you very much for joining me. Tarsha Simmers is the DA's new Western Cape leader. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. I want to stay in the province and Cape Town's port, once a cornerstone of South Africa's fruit export industry, is now facing significant challenges. According to Fumulani Rachitanga, Chief Executive Officer of Fruit South Africa, the port's current inefficiencies are jeopardizing the nation's reputation as a dependable source of high-quality fruit. She joins me now on the program. And firstly, can you elaborate on the specific issues plaguing the port and particularly how they are affecting uh, the export of fruit? As you may have seen from, you know, reports with Cape Town, there are issues to do with delays. We understand that there's a backlog uh, with vessels that have not birthed in Cape Town. So this affects us in terms of, you know, getting our product to the market on time, which in turn affects the quality upon arrival at the markets. And another issue that it also brings to us, which is of concern, is the fact that because of these delays, it's difficult to determine when the shipments will eventually arrive besides the quality issue, which then puts questions on our reliability to supply the key markets that we send our fruit to. And the upshot of that is people will look for other markets, I assume. That's correct. People will look for other markets. If you are not reliable, and I mean, people work on programs, you know, to the, for them to supply their supermarkets. Because one of the things that the, the market uh, highlights is that we cannot afford the supermarkets to have empty shelves because it also, you know, is an issue for them as, as retailers and it also affects their competitiveness and their businesses overall. This is not a new problem, of course. We, we know that it's been in existence for some time. Is it uh, your contention that it's getting worse? Yeah, it is getting worse. Yeah, it's not a new problem. Actually, about two weeks ago, we were celebrating the 10th anniversary of Fruit South Africa in its current form. So we were just also reflecting back, you know, on this issue to say, you know, these challenges were there. Most of them actually were there 
even when Fruits of South Africa was, was established 10 years ago. But we are just seeing that they are getting worse. There does not seem to be any end in sight of the, of the problems. We are aware and we appreciate the actions that government and Transnet are looking at together with industry. But if these issues are not resolved sooner than later, we will end up in a crisis. Particularly if you look at the industry at the moment, which we say is in survival mode because of all the issues that the industry or the developments that have been there recently that are affecting the industry. Looking at you know things like high input costs over the past few years, for instance. What is the value of the fruit industry to the South African economy? We estimated at about 63 billion South African rand. So that's a huge chunk of money. So this indicates just how, yeah, it, ser- how serious the problem is. You say that you're engaging with government, Transnet specifically. What solutions are you looking at? And are these solutions being implemented quickly enough, do you think? Uh, it's mainly now during the deciduous season. It has been our members in the deciduous fruit industry, the table grape industry, and then the palm and stone fruit industry, as well as the Fresh Produce Exporters Forum where they are looking at maybe partnering in terms of purchases of equipment. So these have not yet come into fruition. We hope that in the next few weeks, there will be equipment in the, at the port of Cape Town that will then relieve some pressure that is there at the port. If that equipment doesn't arrive or is not implemented effectively, um, the problem, of course, is just going to get worse, isn't it? Yeah, the problem will get worse. I mean, particularly as the season progresses, because the season is just starting now. So there hasn't really been that much demand in terms of equipment and throughput. But if the equipment gets delayed, it's not there on time, and the season also ramps up, then that will exacerbate Mm -hmm. the, the problem. What are your members telling you right now? Right now is that um, the situation is still what it was last week, but they are also hoping for for improvement. I think everybody wants to see the problems uh, being faced addressed. So we can just remain hopeful and that everything works uh, according to to plan. And then I understand that our members, uh, particularly in the deciduous fruit industry, will continue engaging with Transnet as the season progresses on these uh, interventions that Transnet is going to put in place. Is Fruit South Africa starting to think about diversifying its market or at least its export routes in response to the difficulties that you've outlined? Yeah, South Africa is in that process, but that was not necessarily necessitated by these issues. It was just that we, over the years, the UK and the EU have been our biggest markets combined. So now there's a drive for, you know, exporting more to the Far East. But that process as well takes time because to work on applications for market access, it can take you anything up to 12 years. If you may recall that it took the citrus industry about 12 years to gain access into the Philippines. That's a long time. Yes, it is indeed. All right. Thank you very much uh, for joining me. Uh, Fumulani Rachitanga, Chief Executive Officer of Fruit South Africa. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, some of the country's largest corporations at a recent roundtable conversation co-hosted by the youth development group Africa Tekun and Microsoft have questioned whether South Africa's unemployment challenges are truly about job availability rather than a mismatch of skill, 
demand and supply. So what does all of this mean? Where's the problem? Can it be recalibrated? Oni Nwaneri is the Deputy Chief Executive Officer of Africa Tikkun and is with me now. And first up, maybe just explain in a little bit more detail what the skills gap is that you're referring to and how it is affecting the employability of young South Africans. Uh, what we have found based on the roundtable that we have held with a number of players in the corporate sector and uh, across different sectors is that the standard that corporates require in terms of the skills that they need, especially for specific sectors, in particular, the digital skills sector and ICT sector, the financial services sector, and other sectors that are currently hiring, is that those candidates, the skills that they have Mm. is mismatched to the standards that they want as a whole. So that's the one thing that we notice um, that is a challenge, that one, the standards are not clear, there's no alignment on those standards, and the level of skill is mismatched based on each company's perception of what the standard is. One. The second thing I just want to mention as well is that even within the companies themselves, there is a big emphasis on formal education. And that is a big concern because formal education is not the only determination for determining a person's ability to perform. I'm assuming that we're talking about a skills gap in the tech space. We're talking about a skills gap across different sectors. The companies that we had in our roundtable that we recently had, we had companies from the tech space, we had companies from the banking industry, we have companies from the health industry. And so it was across different industries that that they were saying, look, we have a scarcity of skills. See, we have vacancies, let me put it that way. So we have close to, in the tech skills environment, 66,000 vacancies as we speak, of which 44,000 are linked to young people and at entry-level jobs for which youth employability will apply. Uh, Within other sectors, we also see the same. In fact, we have 28,000 opportunities currently being outside of South Africa uh, because they are looking for those skills that they can't match with in South Africa. So the jobs are there in terms of what the corporates are telling us, but the skills that they are requiring Mm. is not being matched to those jobs. So what what should organizations be doing then to contribute to reducing the skills gap that you refer to? It's a multi-stakeholder approach. One is I think the corporate sector needs to be clear on what the standards are across industries. We need to come up with a framework, collective framework that says this is the standards we agree with. Anyone who trains to these standards, we will employ as a matter of cost. Secondly, the training sector needs to then train to that particular standard. And then the last element that the corporate sector could do is to refine their requirements and understand that we are in a country where there are challenges um, and there are historical challenges as well as present challenges. And our recommendation is that the corporate industry should also look at you know, being a lot more patient and investing patient capital as well as patient human capital resources to support young people within that journey. Explain that to me. I don't quite understand. We find that outside of the standards that has been recommended so that there is a what I will call equality and equity in terms of how people access opportunities, there is also we believe from what we've heard from corporate South Africa in particular that they have an overestimated expectation. The expectation they have can be managed 
in terms of lowering that expectation as a whole. So, for example, a lot of HR departments, what was raised is that the, the traditional way that human capital hires is based on a CV which looks at formal qualifications and nothing more. You start off there. And in fact, the formal qualifications are linked to, in some instances, the top five or top six universities. What we're advocating is that we should look at skills first. Skills first is who can do the job and who has the skills that meets the standard, whether they have a formal qualification or not. But there is risk in hiring someone without a qualification, isn't there? So it depends on how you look at qualification um, in the first instance. Qualification for you can mean a degree. But qualification in the current evolving global context can be a certification, can be, in um, if you look at the way the world has global, there's something called micro-credentialing, that if I take a couple of courses over a period of time and I certify myself, I can still have the equal amount of um, skills as someone who had gone through a four-year degree. We're now sitting in many comparable contexts in our world where we have people who have matric. And we have trained them and certified them, for example, in the ICT context, and they compete and actually outcompete someone who has gone and gotten a four-year or a three-year degree in ICT or in tech or in. So it's no longer about qualifications. It's about what is the standard that we are prepared to accept as corporate uh, South Africa against the uniform framework that we can trust. And we should measure against that standard and do away with traditional practices that look at formal qualifications and degreed qualifications as the only solution to acquiring skills. Just a quick answer to this. Uh, You're predicating your entire argument on a major mind shift change as far as corporate South Africa is concerned. And that, I would say, is easier said than done. Absolutely. And that is why we're also predicating a shift in terms of collaboration, coordination. Three things is mindset shift and collaboration and coordination. If we do not go that route, then we cannot solve the problem we currently have. We will continue to speak about youth unemployment over the next five years, and we would not solve it. So if we want to take an intentional focus and to solve this problem that we say is one of our biggest problems, not just for South Africa, but South Africa has the, has the highest youth unemployment in the world. And if we want to intentionally solve it, mm. then something needs to shift as a matter of course. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I think it's fair to say that South Africans have a hard time figuring out which foods are unhealthy when they go shopping, but that is about to change. There are new draft food labeling regulations that have been published, but the question is, are they going to make any real difference? I mean, answer the question, have you ever read a food label? Well, I'm in conversation now with Tamron Frank, researcher at the School of Public Health at the University of the Western Cape and part of a team that has done some work in this respect. So firstly, are these regulations welcome? Absolutely. They really are a a positive move by the Department of Health. The previous draft regulations that are currently in place were last updated in 2010. And so an update is really due at this point in time. It covers a very vast range of various aspects of food labeling, things like ingredients lists, nutrition information. But what we're most excited about is that the regulation has a section on a front of pack warning label, which will identify unhealthy packaged foods that are high in sugar, salt, or saturated fat, as well as those that contain sweetener. 
And the reason for all of this, of course, is that South Africa has mounting problem when it comes to obesity and diabetes. Absolutely. We're seeing increasing rates year on year and the numbers are not coming down. We're expected to be the country with the 10th highest rate of childhood obesity by 2030, which is quite scary, particularly when we think about the non-communicable diseases like diabetes, hypertension and heart disease that uh, obesity is linked to. So this certainly is concerning. And a lot of this has been linked to the massive proliferation in unhealthy ultra-processed packaged foods that we are seeing being sold and consumed. And so this is really something that needs to be addressed. So explain to me then how the proposed labeling system identifies the unhealthy foods and what criteria were used to determine it? So the labeling system identifies any packaged foods that have got excessive amounts of sugar, sodium, or saturated fat, or that contain non-sugar sweetener. These are all nutrients that have been linked to poor health outcomes and non-communicable diseases. So this was developed by looking, you know, at numerous different countries that have got systems in place at research evidence around what is unhealthy and and what we should be concerned about. And then the criteria was developed by applying these models to the South African packaged food supply. So we looked at what the nutritional composition was of packaged foods in South African supermarkets and then evaluated the criteria against that so that we could identify what would be a suitable criteria to use for South Africa. The challenge, of course, is to ensure that the new labels are easily understandable by the average South African consumer. That's not always the case. Yeah, this was something that was really, really important. We know that South Africa has got 11 official languages and we also have fairly high levels of poor literacy. And so it was important that it would be a label that would be able to be easy to understand by just the general consumer, not necessarily someone with a high education level. And so a lot of testing went into developing the labels. We started off by consulting with experts in health and nutrition and communication and then doing focus groups with South Africans, rural people living in rural areas and in urban areas, people of different languages, people of different literacy levels, um, showing them different labels, seeing what was well understood, refining the label and then coming up with a final label. And then that label was then tested in a representative sample of South Africans. So again, different levels of literacy and different levels of education and different areas of the country to see whether or not it was accurate at identifying unhealthy foods. And very pleased to say that the warning label did perform well. We tested it alongside some other labels that are also used on foods. And and the, the warning label was found to be most effective at identifying the unhealthy foods and was well understood without any education around what the label was. It was well understood by the the participants in the study and there were almost 2,000 participants. I'm correct in saying that the iconography is a black triangle. That is correct, yes. It's a black triangle and it's um, on a white warning strip and there's a triangle. If the food is high in sugar, there's a warning for sugar. If it's high in saturated fat, there's a warning for that or for sodium or for non-sugar sweetness. So each one has got a triangle. There's no guarantee, though, that people are going to pay heed to labels. That's always the big problem, isn't it? Yes, you are correct. And, you know, I think for a long time, people have been 
blamed for what they're eating. We often hear the term used diseases of the lifestyle when people are referring to diabetes or hypertension. But the reality is that we have a very broken food system and it's extremely difficult for individuals to actually make healthy food choices. We know we have high levels of unemployment. People do not have a lot of money to spend on food. And so even if people want to make healthy choices, it's, it's quite difficult for them to do that. And this label is, yes, going to inform them perhaps about which foods are unhealthy, but where it really, really has the potential to make a difference is that it is used then in this regulation and potentially later on in others um, to restrict marketing of these unhealthy products. Um, and that really makes a big difference when we look at how marketing influences food choices amongst mm -hmm. both children and adults and um, it could potentially be used we've seen it used in other countries in the school food environment where these unhealthy foods aren't allowed to be sold or bought into schools uh, could be used in hospitals as well so it really has the potential to be used more broadly to have a positive impact that's not necessarily an individual choice it's more trying to change this broken food system and trying to promote healthier foods by putting restrictions on the unhealthy products. I'm going to leave it there. Tamron Frank, thank you very much indeed for the explanation. And as we draw to a close on this edition of MoneyWeb at Midday, I just want to bring to your attention a couple of other stories that are on or that are on our radar at the moment. We're hearing that the State Security Agency head, Tembesili Majola, has resigned. I can also tell you that a 20-year-old student whose leg had to be amputated after it was crushed by a police in Yala that at the time was escorting Springbok rugby players away from the East London City Hall, and that was more than a week ago, has sadly died. And the Israel Defence Force confirming today that it's carrying out an operation against Hamas at the Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. That's where we're going to leave it for today. MoneyWeb at midday is live at noon every weekday, then immediately repurposed as a podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening and goodbye to you. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.